So here we are in a system not designed for women, not designed for millennials, not designed for inclusion. A system that is finally changing. Let's get familiar. Let's talk about business. Let's talk about lifestyle. Let's talk about womanhood. I'm Leslie Gray, bringing you passionate, informed guests to talk about millennial women building wealth, power, and influence in our modern era. The future for women and wealth is brighter than ever. Welcome to Love and Dividend. Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I want to say they're having a moment, but they've been having a moment since 2017. So I think we have to stop calling it a moment and start taking it pretty damn seriously. That is the topic of this week's episode. I want to get into it with you. When I think of Bitcoin, I get excited. I think it's so cool. I think it makes sense that it would be the natural evolution of money, that, you know, paper and coin money and gold don't really make sense. I love the parallels between Bitcoin and gold that you mine for it, that having the best resources to mine for it, that it is something tangible, even though it's software, so it's kind of untangible. I like all of this stuff. What I don't necessarily love about it is I don't fully understand it. I don't find it to be mainstream, and that makes it feel risky to me. I feel like the more I understand it, the less risky it becomes. I do not currently own any Bitcoin or any crypto. I have been very close to buying in several times, be through an investment style where I buy, you know, a number of cryptocurrencies just to hold to see if they go up to buying actual Bitcoin, which is very expensive right now. It's very cost prohibitive. I think it's $40,000 for a Bitcoin Uh, to a number of other new forms where you can you can buy less just to be in the game. Because I haven't done it yet, and because this is one of many rises we've seen, I have a lot of FOMO. And FOMO seems like a word that keeps coming up whenever we're talking about Bitcoin or crypto. FOMO, if you don't know, is the fear of missing out. Now, I am very familiar with FOMO. I, like many millennials, suffer from debilitating FOMO. If you don't have fear of missing out, if you have JOMO, Oprah always says she has JOMO, which is joy of missing out, then you will not understand this. And you will think, oh, just like any anxiety, just get over it. We can't. I I wish I could just get over my FOMO. That is not a possibility. Um, What I've learned after 2020, the year of the most FOMO. Now, to be fair, there was nothing to miss out on but it felt like fear of missing out on my actual life because all the fun things were closed and it was a lot of time spent solo. So FOMO is real. If you don't suffer from it, then I don't wanna tell you, you can't understand, but maybe you can understand it in the context of Bitcoin because what has happened here is recently, 
Tesla, my boy, Elon Musk, shout out, I assume he listens to this podcast. This is where he gets all his financial information, I'm sure, um, announced that Tesla will be accepting Bitcoin, which is so cool, which makes it more mainstream, which again, kind of exacerbates that FOMO, that feeling like, why didn't I get in when it was more affordable? After the last jump in 2017, 2018, why didn't I get in then when I had the nudge? And I think at the end of the day, FOMO stems a lot from not listening to your intuition, from not trusting your feelings to get kind of Star Wars. Trust your feelings, Luke. Use the force. This microphone also is very Star Wars. Here, I'll show you it. Beep, boop, pop, boop. That's R2-D2 saying, you should have invested in Bitcoin. Boop, world whistle, woo. Did anyone get those Valentines? They're like really fun. It's always R2-D2 with like, whip, world, bop, whistle, woo. That's R2-D2's way of saying happy Valentines. <laughs> Part of the problem with sitting alone doing the intro to these podcasts is I just get such a kick out of myself that it'll be a lot of me laughing at my own humor. Hope you're laughing with me, people listening. Back to Bitcoin. So... Cryptocurrency at large includes a lot more than Bitcoin. Bitcoin is one of many, but my guest on today's podcast is like, he's basically in love with Bitcoin. Like I ask on the podcast, like, if you love it so much, why don't you marry Bitcoin? Like, Jesse, you're actually obsessed with it. Um, I told him that I think his book, which is called Magical Internet Money, great title, is actually a love letter to Bitcoin. It's him professing his love on behalf of humanity. It's him picking Bitcoin over all other cryptos. It's him saying the best use of blockchain. So when you think of Bitcoin, you also think of blockchain. Is Bitcoin itself. And like his book, I think this interview really nicely unpacks Bitcoin and gives us sort of a basic for understanding it. Why Jesse is the right person to do this is, I mean, when I know him, <laughs> so I was able to get him on this podcast. He is the brother-in-law to a very dear friend of mine, Court, and she recommended the book, and it was a great recommendation. I'm so glad I got it and that I read it. And so we had met at several events. But once I read his book, I definitely wanted to chat about it, and I was so happy he brings with him, his expertise, his knowledge, his 10 years in the financial industry. He graduated from McGill with a degree in economics in 2006. And he graduated from an MBA at Ryerson in 2015. So he comes with a wealth of knowledge he comes with expertise, and he comes really open and ready to sit down and chat about this. Uh, he also gave a lot of, they're not including the episode, but a lot of practical advice of how you can get started investing in Bitcoin. We're going to link to that in the notes because we all have to overcome our FOMO here, guys. Like, we all have to get on board this train so that when the next big thing happens, which I think will be sooner than you think, we're not sitting around like, man, I have FOMO. I wish I'd gone fear of missing out. Now, the shadow side to remember about FOMO is sometimes you have it because if you act on your FOMO, I know this from experience, 
You do things that are against your own self-interest. Where the debilitating part of my FOMO comes in is when I go to things because I'm so scared to miss them. And I know I wasn't up for it. I know I couldn't afford it or I was too tired or that it really wasn't something that added value. So you can't let FOMO run your life. You have to figure out what you want. You have to trust your intuition and then you have to take the right action. So I hope after listening to this episode, you get better attuned to your intuition, you figure out what action to take and you take it. Before we get into the interview with Jesse, I, of course, wanted to circle back with Love and Dividends' favorite crypto wild woman, Susie Ennis. She is now working at Hut8 Mining, a cryptocurrency mining company focused on mining Bitcoin. It's a large Canadian company, and you may hear more from them later in the season. But we just wanted to give you a little snippet of my chat with Sue because she gives, as always, incredible, practical, real talk advice so that we can get over our FOMO and get into the crypto game. Self-diagnosed debilitating FOMO, I call it. Like it's fear of missing out. So aggressive, it's debilitating in my life. So I understand both FOMO and the debilitating nature of it. It's bad. So so Bitcoin's now at $40,000, or I think it's like at $43,000 now. I tried to look it up just before. That's the numbers I was getting. Over 40K. Yeah, yeah that's a lot of money that, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't personally have. To for just one of the Bitcoins, right? That's for one coin. That's a lot of agree. Yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly, right? It's a lot of cash lot. to pony up for one little thing yeah. you can't even really see. There's a couple different ways that you can invest, and this isn't just me pitching my company Crypto miners are a proxy way to play on the Bitcoin mm. asset class because you're getting a call option basically on current inventory and also future production. So let's say if Bitcoin gets to, I think JP Morgan said 146,000 bucks, you're going to need real world infrastructure to even be able to acquire new coins. And that's where crypto miners come in. I mean, you still, you need real world infrastructure right now, but at that point, price point, the scale of energy you'll need to acquire Bitcoins and future Bitcoins, it will be completely unprecedented. So it's a really good way to get into the space and get exposure to the space. And like, for example, right now, my company's trading at five bucks. There's a couple of other companies out there that aren't exactly like mine because they sell their Bitcoin versus we hold ours on our balance sheet, but they're trading anywhere from $2 to $20 to $30. And that obviously is a more palatable price point than versus getting the coin yourself. I mean, again, obviously you don't own the coin per se when you invest in crypto miner, but it is by proxy a very good investment at a cheaper price point. There's another stock that's doing big moves in that killer app I mentioned about the decentralized finance on the blockchain, and it's called DeFi, D-E-F-I. It's trading at about a buck right now, but the founders are too young, but brilliant guys. I think they sold their last company to Google. And I think they actually made their real money in genomics. They're not even crypto kids, but they've effectively built an investment company and also a way to build better in the decentralized finance space. So the ticker's DEFI, that's trading at like a dollar. I would say that's a good 
again, a good proxy investment to get into the next killer app on the blockchain. Yeah. What's the, what's your ticker? It's H U T dot T O it's on the TSX. Those are two ways to definitely get in, get in on the action. There's one more way is you can actually go through wealth simple and buy crypto. Yes. Big change since last we chatted. Well, simple. I think right after our last interview, well, simple announced they were doing crypto. Yeah. And so even if you want to buy like a thousand bucks worth of Bitcoin, you can do that through wealth simple, and then you can transfer it to high interest savings accounts. There's a company called BlockFi, B-L-O-C-K-F-I, and they offer high interest payouts on even like a thousand bucks worth of Bitcoin. So even if you have like one fortieth of a Bitcoin, there's still companies that will pay you 8% to deposit that coin with them. So there are lots of different ways to play in. On this talk to me about what do you mean by deposit with them? Like, am I selling it to them or I'm just leaving it with them? Like, no, so you're leaving it with them, like a high interest savings account. And then they're paying you. Eight high, yeah. Oh my God. How come I didn't put this together? Of course you want to keep your coins in a savings account. And of course you want the institution to pay you. Yeah. David, I didn't even know that was a thing. Well, it's only just recently become a thing. Like it's only in BlockFi, B-L-O-C-K-F-I. Yeah. They're, they're excellent leaders in the space. I also know these guys and they're professional. I know, I don't remember which institutions, but there, there are some institutions. Buy crypto, start earning on it. Sorry, I'm Googling it right now. Yeah, no, do it. And you know who else is good? Actually Voyager Digital. That's another crypto broker that you can earn interest on leaving your cryptos with them. And I know those guys personally, they're incredible. So my understanding with Wealthsimple is the only problem with crypto is you then don't own the Bitcoin. Whereas if you use, there is other apps where you can purchase, you know, a thousand dollars worth of it. Yeah. And then you put it in your wallet. Yes. And you have to get a wallet. And then through the wallet, you could invest it in a BlockFi or a Voyager. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You can do that, but like, not invest it, save it and to make interest on it. Yeah. But yes. So yes. And that's true. Like wealth simple sort of does all of that for you. Okay. And most crypto OGs find that abhorrent, but I don't mind it. Cause quite frankly, like I'm prone to fucking shit up and like, maybe I'll forget my code. Yeah. A little key. That's the thing I am scared about. I don't mind it. Like I, yeah. I don't think it's that bad that they do it all for you. And yeah, they do it for a little fee, but it's less headaches, less, I forgot my password drama, less, you know, and if you're only buying like a thousand bucks worth of Bitcoin, I don't think it's that big a deal. So cool. Here's the interview with Jesse. We hopped on Zoom, so you'll see us both. This interview happened in January, so it actually happened before the big announcement by Tesla about Bitcoin. So this is even before, guys, Bitcoin was that cool. Like, this is kind of a hipster interview where, like, we did it first. And I think you're going to love it. Enjoy. Hey, Jesse. Welcome to the Love and Dividends podcast. Hi, Leslie. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining. We're, of course, here to talk about your book, Magic Internet Money. And I just want to say how much I loved it. When I first sort of opened it up, it reminded me a lot of like a scientific paper because I'm an engineer. So I really liked like the numbering system. It very much followed. 
I mean, there's a quote at the beginning of each chapter. So the quote reminded me of was that if I had more time, I'd write a shorter letter by Pascal, mathematician. I was like, Jesse's definitely put in the time to write a very concise letter. But then when I started reading it, I was like, this is very poetic. Like it's actually written really beautifully. There's a lot of beautiful prose. There's all these different quotes from like philosophers to Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. <laughs> I run the gamut of the quotes. I, I have like Batman, Superman, Batman, Batman Charlie that. and the Chocolate Factory, The Hunger Games, and then, you know, economists, U.S. presidents, philosophers, yes. like the whole gamut. Yeah. This is not a scientific book about Bitcoin. Like this is a love letter to Bitcoin <laughs> on behalf of humanity this is the most romantic novel I've ever read. So you're sort of the first person who said that to me and has sort of picked up on that. It it was. And then as I'm <laughs> deeply enthralled in, again, the greatest romance novel I've read so far this year, I get to chapter 11 where you say, up until this point, this book has romanticized Bitcoin, looking at it through rose-colored lenses. And then I was like, oh, this isn't a new love. You're in a long-term committed relationship where you're like, I know her flaws too. Don't think, <laughs> don't think I've just met this person. Like, I know them well. It's also a very devoted love story. Like, you go into, and we'll talk about this later, other forms of cryptocurrency. But I mean, my takeaway was Bitcoin's the one. Before I came on the podcast, I was thinking about, you know, the title of this podcast is Love and Dividends. I don't know <laughs> how I'm going to bring love into this equation. Within two minutes here, you've done it for me beautifully. So thank you for that. So what inspired you to write the book and who is the intended audience? I started my career in late 2006, basically right as the financial crisis was getting started and observed you know, the flaws and perils of the monetary system. When the U.S. started bailing out banks, I was sitting there scratching my head thinking, well, they just created $600 billion from nothing. How, how does that work? Why can they just create money? Is I have to work for money? Why don't they have to work for money? Shouldn't we all be on the same footing? Shouldn't there be a level playing field? And basically that initial thought sent me spiraling to re-educate myself on the question, what is money? And Leslie, I don't know if you can see me here. So this is the I book, can, the, yeah. the physical book. And then the back of the book is, we call this, we call this question, what is money? Uh, the rabbit you chase down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And so I started doing that before Bitcoin was around. I was questioning how our monetary system worked, why it worked or didn't work. And I started to, again, teach myself economics from a different perspective. So most economics taught in universities is, is of the Keynesian discipline. And, and the Keynesian discipline, while theoretically sounds nice, in practice, it simply doesn't translate. There's lots of holes and flaws to be poked. The Austrian perspective doesn't treat economics as a mathematical equation so much as it looks at the incentives that cause humans to interact with each other and why and what makes for good incentives and will lead to better outcomes. And so I started to basically take this journey and try to understand this in my own terms. Bitcoin, obviously, the white paper was written in 2008. It was released to the world in January of 2009. I had heard of it in 2011, but I didn't start to really take a good, good look at it until 2017. I remember vividly in 2011 learning that, okay, Bitcoin had a fixed 
monetary issuance schedule, meaning there would be 21 million coins. There's a predetermined schedule. And so there is no uncertainty about monetary policy. Right now, today, we don't know how much money is going to be printed tomorrow. We don't know what the interest rate is going to be tomorrow. Maybe it'll change on us. I mean, there's almost no way it won't. (laughs) You know, the last year has been nuts. (laughs) Yeah. And that uncertainty makes it really hard to plan for the future. It's this cloud that just, it clouds our vision of what's to come. So Bitcoin really clears that up and fixes that because it is definite. We know precisely what's going to happen with Bitcoin. And so that just alleviates one of many concerns in in the current system. I understood the economic principles of Bitcoin and I understood that Bitcoin is mined at a cost that, you know, no one can just decide that there's going to be more Bitcoin. You have to participate in the network and contribute energy to participate in earning Bitcoin. Unlike today, where someone can just, you know, snap their fingers and away we go, we have more money. In 2017, I really started to dig into it. I don't know the most about how everything works in Bitcoin, but I can explain why it empowers me. So it's similarly to how I don't actually know how my cell phone works. I don't know how we are sitting on Zoom by now and how the, are the videos are transmitting across the airwaves, but I know how it's empowering to both of us. And so I wanted to write the book literally for everyone because Bitcoin is for everyone. It reminded me a lot of the kind of conversations happening in the 90s about the internet where people were like, yeah, yeah, I can see how this is sort of cool. Instead of the letter I'm writing, I could send some sort of email. That could be fun. And artists and people on the leading edge were like, you've completely missed it. If you think this is just one more element, you know, we have FedEx and we have email. Great. You're missing it. And you're missing how revolutionary it is. Like that's the tone I got. Very much so. There, There is a lot more to Bitcoin than just money. Money is sort of the first and primary use case. But what makes something valuable is that it's trustworthy. And Bitcoin is the most trustworthy system that we have basically in the world right now because it is a source of pure objective truth. Now, that truth is just digits, but it is entirely honest 100% of the time, and we can verify that. And so that becomes a very powerful thing. And how we leverage that in the future, it is going to be super fascinating to play out. There's lots of interesting experiments going on right now, but it allows for us to have this common basis that we can both agree on, even if our interests diverge, or even if we're enemies to a certain extent, there still becomes this common bond that can link us and allow us to mutually benefit. That we already know works. You're describing globalization. And the reason that To my mind, that works. Well, you at some large institutions, I've been at several large firms, worked for many large financial institutions or on their behalf. I mean, the reason all of this works is because we go, yeah, it doesn't matter whether I trust Jesse Berger or Leslie Gray. I trust this institution. I trust, in my case, the profession of law and the Law Society of Ontario. So I trust when I send millions, sometimes billions in escrow, in trust, I mean, how much more sense does it make to all of us instead of it still being a human who still could be corrupt or flawed? What a great use to my mind of technology. So now I want to read a quote from the intro, the prelude. I'm basically just going to read your book to you for this interview. Hope that's okay. That's the love. (laughs) In overlooking it as an instrument that works best when finely tuned, we chase it like a fish does bait unaware of the fact that our meal comes with strings attached. This blind spot is the greatest obstacle preventing us from seeing how much modern money is negatively affecting our wealth and well-being. So I like the pitch too that it's more than just money. It's more than just here's dollars in my hand. It's 
wealth is a bigger topic and and well-being. So, yeah, wealth, when you work, you know, when you start a company, you are trying to create value, right? When you create a product or service, you are trying to create value for those around you. You are trying to improve your stock and the stock of others. This is a benefit. And when you do that, you want to be able to preserve and save that value because we live in a system that is inflationary. And it's it's not a secret that over time, dollars, fiat currencies devalue, right? We all sort of know this. It just generally accepted that, yeah, you know, dollars devalue. So when you earn money, you cannot actually preserve your value. And so you're in this constant race to either take on additional risk that most people don't want to be personal portfolio managers. Most people don't want to evaluate the stocks and the earnings and you know the, the competitive landscape. That's a lot of wasted mental energy that's unnecessary. You should have three options with money. You should be able to save, you should be able to invest, and you should be able to spend it, right? Those are three pretty simple uses for money. But with our current system, saving isn't really an option. If you were to save money just as cash for two years, three years, five years, the purchasing power that you earned is guaranteed to lose and devalue over time. And that's not right. Like that's just flat out not right. So Bitcoin reintroduces the concept of savings. You can earn money and save it. Just to jump in, that's why people see Bitcoin as an investing tool. What's so interesting is we're so messed up about money that we're like, oh, this is an investment because it will appreciate over time. And your argument is, no, this is what it should be. We're just so used to losing value at whatever, 2% or now we're seeing this as an investment when really like that's what money should be. Very much so. We sort of have to pitch it right now as an investment because that's how we're used to thinking about it. That was a big change when I was reading your book because I keep being like, should I invest in Bitcoin? I was looking at it the same as, yeah, any stock and it really not. No, because there is no CEO, there's no manager, there's no board of directors and there's no agenda ever. There's no shareholders, right? It's just money. So for me, yes, I save money But in the background, in the context of saving money, I understand that the purchasing power of my money can increase. When I'm saving money, the amount of money I have stays the same, but the purchasing power grows. And there's a distinction there, and it's very important. But the bottom line is that, in principle, we can have a different money whose qualitative properties allow it to increase in purchasing power over time rather than decrease in purchasing power over time. Think of it like any technology, right? Where we constantly innovate because we want to create products that have, again, qualitative properties. Money is another kind of technology, right? We haven't had dollars since the beginning of time. Money has evolved. There were seashells, there were stones, there was gold. It's been an evolution. So Bitcoin is frankly the next evolution of money. I was reading something funny earlier about how, you know, 10-year-olds today aren't going to be walking into a bank saying, oh yeah, I need to give you my ID and it'll take three to five business days to process this transaction. That concept will be laughable to them. Like, why are you closed on the weekend? This is the way we're going now. I personally think it's an unstoppable trend. And this is by far the best monetary system we have ever had. And it it's a tide that raises all boats, which is the best part of it. Even if you don't buy Bitcoin, you will benefit from it in the long run. You may not be as wealthy as others, but you will still be able to benefit. 
when I was first hearing about these, it was definitely confusing. It was like, we've got blockchain, we've got Bitcoin, we've got all these other cryptocurrencies. It all kind of got enmeshed in the conversation. What was helpful to me was this line from your book in chapter five, which said, accordingly, Bitcoin seems to be emerging as exemplary money in part because it is an exemplary blockchain. And you write a whole chapter called Blockchain 101 or a couple chapters. I'm wondering if you could just take our listeners through just high level. It has a really neat origin story, which you talk about. It's got heroes. It's got magnanimous characters willing to self-sacrifice for the greater good of this. And so I wonder if you could just high level so so that we're clear as we have the discussion, because the next step will be us talking about Bitcoin versus fiat. Can you just start at the beginning with what is Bitcoin How is it connected to blockchain and how did it sort of start? You've touched on it a bit, but just a high level sort of Bitcoin blockchain 101. Yeah, for sure. So there is a pretty extended prehistory to Bitcoin. Public key cryptography and the idea of digital currencies, these things were being floated as early as, you know, the 70s, the mid to late 1970s. And there was a lot of tinkering and experimenting throughout the course of the 80s and 90s. One of the inventions was Hashcash by someone called Dr. Adam, named Dr. Adam Back. And Hashcash invented proof of work, which is a system that basically deters cheating. It makes cheating very, very difficult. Proof of work is the consensus algorithm that determines which miner wins the reward for blocks. And I'm sorry, I'm jumping a little bit ahead. But the bottom line is that the technologies that led to Bitcoin, like Bitcoin is just a few different puzzle pieces that were already created fit together in the right way. Bitcoin itself didn't necessarily invent anything new on its own. It's just that once all these pieces were together in the right way, now, yes, you have something entirely new. So Bitcoin was, in effect, a product of the global financial crisis. There was a, a, there's a history of several you know, leading cryptographers and cypherpunks, as they're known, who are advocates for, you know, digital privacy, effectively, who were trying to create something that could be transacted with on a peer-to-peer basis. And so Bitcoin put all those pieces together. And in 2009, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, released the white paper on, it was Halloween of 2008 that the white paper came out. And this was effectively just a roadmap for the system, explaining here are the different components and how I want to fit them together. And then on January 3rd, 2009, Satoshi, who is the pseudonymous creator of Bitcoin, released it into the wild and there were no strings attached. It was once you hit go, it's out there. It's open source. There is no permission necessary. If you want to participate, no one can stop you. Everyone is is watching the same scoreboard, right? We all watch the numbers change on the scoreboard. If someone tries to cheat, everyone else calls them out and basically rejects them from participating because no, you're cheating. There are established rules. All the rules are entirely enforced. That's the way the system goes. So you're either you either play by the rules or you don't participate, in which case you don't get to benefit. It's very clear incentive not to cheat. You'll if you try to cheat, you will just waste resources. In terms of blockchain, and I, I, I'm sorry, I, I skirted around blockchain a little bit, but blockchain is one component of Bitcoin, right? It is it is not the be all and end all. It gets a lot of hype and a lot of attention, and there are reasons for that. And to a degree, there are applications, but Without question, the purpose of a blockchain is to to funnel trust and ultimately value into a network. If there's no value, then you won't be able to trust it because there's no incentive to secure it. So ultimately, it needs to funnel trust and value. And that 
leads you to money as the best you know use case for it. You can build other things on top of a very trusted network, but all these other open source blockchains, we have a whole list of thousands of cryptocurrencies and they're all trying to do creative different things. And you know, experimenting with that is fine, but that is not necessarily the most trusted system. And if we're talking about money for the future, for humanity, for the literally the entire planet, then we need the most trustworthy system we can have that also happens to have the best economics, the most, you know, robust, resilient community that cares about maintaining the rights of all stakeholders. And that is Bitcoin and nothing else comes even remotely close. All right. Let's jump into, uh, oh, maybe you can just remind us fiat money. So people are familiar with the term. This is our modern system. Fiat essentially means by decree. So someone's the boss and everyone else is their subject. Basically, that's it, right? The central bank is the boss. They say there's going to be new money in the system, then new money goes into the system. And the short story of why that is problematic is because when new money is created, it is not evenly distributed. It starts going through certain channels that certain people or organizations have access to. And so they can spend it and benefit from that spending before everyone else can benefit from it. And that creates a lot of the inequality that we see in the world. I'm going to read you one of your quotes again that I like about fiat money, also just because I like reading aloud, where you say, as for fiat currency, its scales are tilted. It is managed entirely behind closed doors, and its prohibitive use is insisted upon by law, since governments are wholly dependent on its continued use to fund their bloated administration. The inherent unfairness of its governance rests in the authority to create money, which is a central bank monopoly, and to distribute money, which is a commercial bank. So that's that's your sort of, that was my favorite of the quotes of like, ooh, we're, we're done with, <laughs> you have a very clear view, at least in the book, of, of that type of money. And, and the way you sort of set it up is the concept of proof-based versus trust-based. So trust-based, meaning our current system where we say, okay, bank, we trust you. You say we need more money, fine. Correct. You say we need inflation, fine. You want to change Correct. interest rates, fine. I'll, you know, I keep paying regardless. Whereas with Bitcoin, we appear to have a proof-based system where we're not trusting anyone. We can look at, it's a public ledger private accounts, pseudonymous, but a public ledger. So we don't need to trust anything. It's proven. Is that, am I getting that concept right? That's exactly it. By participating in the ledger, you are opting in to the monetary policy that was decided upon and announced to the entire world with, you know, complete transparency on day one, right? So there's no secret. That's why we can all continue to verify that a The monetary policy, which we all understand, has continued to adhere to its schedule. So that's number one. And then number two, we can observe that if Jesse sends a transaction to Leslie, even though it'll be XYZ123 to ABC456, there's no names attached to it. We know that that transaction was executed faithfully and that the one Bitcoin that was in my account, when it left and landed in yours... That happened, right? So we have documented proof that happened. I cannot go and send one to you and send that same coin elsewhere. The system will not allow for double spend, as as it would be known, right? Right. And so that's very important because that way we are constantly accounting for all of the money in circulation, even though, again, it's who has it is irrelevant. The point is that it is all accounted for. And then you've sort of talked to us already that I think I was the most confused about was this 
idea of scarcity. Can you walk me through that one? Scarcity was a really tough chapter to write. (laughs) Okay, good. I I rewrote that chapter three times at least. To be honest, it's the only one I don't even have a quote to read to you about. It's like, (laughs) I know there's scarcity. Oh, well, you, you, the, compel, the compelling and alluring part, the compelling and alluring part. <laughs> oh yeah. The compelling about. and alluring. It's the sexiest um, of the chapters. It's the sexiest sure. of the chapters, but it, it, it is difficult. So, so we know Bitcoin, there's 21 million coins, right? That's, that's all the coins there's ever going to be. Okay. And something that I've, uh, I've sort of tweeted about or, or mentioned in the past is that economic abundance is rooted in monetary scarcity. Let's say there's a shortage of houses as a market. We've identified that printing money does nothing on its own to mobilize resources. Printing money does not grow new trees. Printing money does not, you know, stir the concrete. What it does is it shifts purchasing power from those who don't have the printing press to those who do. And there's a moral hazard in that. And there's, I have a page on moral hazard. Short story is effectively, it's very problematic and, and inefficient at the end of the day, because how an economy is supposed to work is that prices are like a language, right? They tell you what is happening. They convey economic knowledge. If prices are going up, then something is either in more demand or perhaps there's less supply. And so when the market realizes this, we can act accordingly. But if the central bank is printing money to say, well, we need to massage prices. We think prices in this sector should go this way and prices in this sector should go that way. They are distorting the actual value of things. That's what creates inefficiency. So when you have a absolutely fixed, scarce amount of money in circulation that no one can mess with, the language is always crystal clear, right? Prices will adjust. They will not be stable. Sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. But regardless, you are going to get accurate information. And that's what we want in an economy. Because if we know for sure where resources are needed, because prices are telling us we need to allocate resources over here, we can start to mobilize it faster. But when we're distorting prices, we, we lose sight of what's actually happening. Monetary scarcity, that's how we get to economic abundance. Abundance. I mean, this is the engineer in me being like, of course, outfitting your house with power in 1900s was for the wealthiest of the wealthy, was just Downton Abbey. Years later, that is standard and a right, and we have a whole hydro system to make sure. Actually, in Ontario, Casaloma Builder actually was the one who was going to privatize, then went public have a lot of thoughts on this uh, because because these things should be rights. I mean, they should be available to the public and same with money. So I, I like that one because I think when I saw scarcity, it triggered, okay, well, that sounds like the same thing we've always done. A few get all of it and the rest don't, but it's actually the reverse. That's, that's correct. Money being scarce is going to create more value for all of us. It's, it's a rising tide that lifts all boats. Scarcity also just psychologically, when something is scarce, it becomes more valuable. There are a lot of reasons for this. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. In the book, I use an example of the brand Supreme. People love this brand. I don't actually know if they're anything so special. It's just they put their logo on the shirt and then they say, we're only doing a run. There's only going to be 10 of these shirts. So people flock to them. It's, right. it's a literal, like documented psychological thing. Scarcity attracts value. So economic abundance is rooted in monetary scarcity. When we have scarce money, we are going to compete to earn money, Right. Leslie, you know, is offering a product or service. Jesse has some Bitcoin. You want some of my Bitcoin. So you're going to say, okay, I really do. I'm going, I'm going to give you this service. And then someone else comes along and says, you know what? I can do this service even better and even cheaper. And so we get competition. No, What's no. that? No, they can't. But but the point is that when you have to compete to earn money, the products and services being offered become better and cheaper 
and they're more, you know, they'll last longer, all that. And that's better for everyone, whether you have, again, lots of Bitcoin or a little Bitcoin or money, a lot of money or not a lot of money. This leads perfectly into the next one, which is fairness was another big argument. I like this quote from chapter nine, which is the barriers to joining or leaving the network are practically non-existent and it works on a level playing field, affording all users equal opportunity to earn money and shape policy. It's not just the competitive nature, which there's certainly some of that and we like a little bit of that, but I think one of the big deterrents isn't just that people aren't driven to compete. It's that, well, why should I, if I can barely trust this product? I saw a little bit of that. I worked at a few big law firms, highly competitive environment known for it. I'm not the first to say that. Where trust became eroded was certainly associates going, well, what does it matter if this year they're not doing bonuses anyway? There's things like that. It's not just who's the best. That's certainly a component, but it became do we trust the system we're working in? Do we trust it to value us? And if not, what's the point? I think I saw, and I think a lot of just our generation in general, millennials in general, are starting to say, like, I don't trust this anymore. I'm not sure it's worth competing, not because I don't think I can't compete. I I think as a generation, we get hated on a lot for just being entitled and expecting things to come. (laughs) I actually think a lot of the time it's like, well, What's the point? I can't get a house in Toronto anyway. It's become such a barrier. What's the point? These things I thought I'd be able to get to because I did the right things. I worked hard in school. I, And I don't think it's us like around being like, whoa, I just can't compete. I think it's us going, well, what what are the prizes? Pension, like that, that baby boomer path just doesn't exist anymore. And I do think it's what throws a lot of people out not just of not competing, but being like, I don't want to play this game. I don't even see any prizes worth playing for. That's a, I'm glad you said the word prizes. So we have an expression that in Bitcoin, it goes, uh, play stupid play games, stupid win, games. Play, play stupid games, stupid win prizes. stupid prizes, right? Exactly. Okay. So it's not only a Bitcoin thing, but uh, it's a great one. But yeah, so you're on this hamster wheel that's stacked against you, right? It's not about being in your favor. It's not a level playing field. No one's looking for a fair advantage. What's the game I'm playing? Yeah, exactly. So if you don't understand the game you're playing, then how can you possibly expect to get ahead? Oh my God. Also, I loved, this is random, but in your book, how you talk about how most people in 2018, was it that most people cheat at Monopoly? That there was like, we talk about that just randomly, how it's like, even when we play a game that has clear rules, all of us are like, "Mm, I am going to so yeah, that, it, that was like, I was so, I was laughing when I came across this Hasbro, the the, ga- the, Hasbro, the maker yeah. of the game Monopoly studied people playing Monopoly and determined that half of people will cheat at Monopoly, which is laughable. <laughs> and, th- and then I, I created a few analogies for how that relates to the monetary system. And actually it's funny, one of the things I didn't mention in the book, which oh. I regret because it would have fit. Getting exclusive here. Yeah, yeah. It would have fit so beautifully. There's actually a rule in Monopoly that says if you run out of money, like of the colored papers in the game, then just write more numbers on paper and use that as money. That's literally a rule. Ooh. It's right there. There, It's it's right there, in the game. It reminded me of there's a Simpsons episode uh, where the Simpsons are playing Monopoly and get into like a huge fight such that they have to call the police and Chief Wiggum <laughs> comes and they're like breaking up this like huge bra- Homer's doing the choking Bart and, and the cops Lou who's one of the cops turns and goes how do those Parker brothers sleep at night 
on the note of rules to the next sure. point, uh, the decentralized nature of Bitcoin yes. was another one of your big arguments. Going to read you another quote. I have to read a sure. quote every 15 minutes. Apparently. I, pre- I, I love hearing my own words read back to me. Oh, great. <laughs> when it comes down to it, government needs to control money far more than money needs to be controlled by government. By the way, this is how I view women and feminism in generally. Men need to control women yeah. far more than women need to be controlled, which is absolutely. I mean, everyone should be equally empowered. The word decentralized or decentralization, or decentralization. In, the context, in the context of Bitcoin refers to the fact that no single party can control it. So there are various stakeholders. There's nodes, which are, you could think of them as, you know, observers of the network and keepers of the ledger. So they simply download every 10 minutes a new block, which is like a new entry into the ledger. They observe that it's correct. They sign off on it. It becomes a part of the blockchain and then on to the next block. The miners are the ones who are using their computing power to create a hash, which is literally a string of letters and numbers in cryptography that relates to all the transactions that have occurred in the last 10 minutes. And the first one to find the correct hash gets the reward for the block. So there's miners, there's nodes, and then there's developers. Developers are the ones who write the code and who are contributing new code to be incorporated into nodes and into mining. These are sort of the three big stakeholders, obviously holders. So people who own Bitcoin are stakeholders as well to a certain degree. And so all of them are differently empowered. And it's not that they're necessarily equally empowered, but that no one has veto power over the network. And all the individual nodes and all the individual miners have their own power. They're not all grouped together. It's not all nodes are identical. Not all miners are identical. Each person can claim you know, their degree of power on the network and exercise their degree of power on the network, and no one can stop them from doing that. So that's what the decentralized part of it means. And that's why it's very important, because it helps assure that everyone constantly plays by the same rules. Love it. And then finally, fortitude. The quote, and you talk about this in sort of chapter six, and this was even my thinking was, okay, if this is so great and so powerful, someone's going to come after it. And in 2017, it even survived a major conflict among some of its most ardent supporters. During that episode, a group of influential figureheads, currency exchanges, entrepreneurs and miners lobbied for a controversial protocol change to increase the block size from one megabyte to eight megabytes. Do you want to talk about that and how, what came out of that and how that demonstrates the fortitude of Bitcoin? Yeah. So number one, it's called the fork wars now in retrospect, we've referred to it as the fork wars of 2017. The fork Uh, wars. Like a fork? fork? Yeah, like a fork. Yeah. Um, Because the chain starts as one and then it was forked off. The fork in the road. Got it. So it's known as the fork wars. Basically, the bottom line is that a very powerful consortium wanted to increase the block size. The problem with doing that is that that would make it eight times harder for the average node operator to download the blockchain. It would make it so that at a certain point, the average laptop couldn't run a node anymore. Like right now, you could still run a node on a phone, actually. To download the blockchain, it would take a number of days to do it, but 
with the right phone, you could actually download the entire blockchain. So on a laptop, you can download the entire Bitcoin blockchain and it's not going to be too cumbersome. And so we want to preserve that because if we have more nodes, it's more accessible for nodes, then we have more people participating in Bitcoin's governance by running nodes and running their version of the software. If we had increased it, you know, we would have compressed the network. It would have become more centralized. Now, I mentioned the powerful consortium because again, there was a whole lobbying effort and everyone was trying to win over their peers and say, you know, these very, very, very influential people in, in the Bitcoin world were saying, we need to, we need to increase the block size. We need to increase the block size. And there were a number of reasons for that. And it doesn't matter. I'm not going to go into it because no one controls the network, not even this power consortium. When they try to implement this change, the nodes who do nothing but observe the network and add blocks to the ledger and say, yep, the block is good. They simply rejected it. They weren't the miners generating all the power. They just observe and verify the network. And they said, no, thanks. And all they did was continue to run the exact same software they had been running for years. If you want to go fork it off, you can. But by doing that, they circumvented consensus. Consensus is the mechanism mm-hmm. by which all the parties come to agreement. And so a few of these people splintered off. But when you splinter off, you're saying that I don't agree to the rules of the game that everyone has agreed to, that we've all agreed to for years. And so no one joined them at the, you know, now three years down the road, like Mm -hmm. everyone has abandoned these forks because we know they're useless. You know, Bitcoin continued marching on as it had doing what it's doing. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to upgrade Bitcoin to implement changes for Bitcoin. People propose changes all the time. They tried to propose something that was not compatible. It got rejected. That's the beautiful thing about Bitcoin. Anyone can try to attack it. At this point, we basically <laughs> this just This is where invite, the love story comes in. He is like, no we, one can take her. At this point, we literally laugh when, oh, this government wants to ban Bitcoin. Okay, have fun trying. Have fun. Yeah, like have fun trying. You know, we wish you luck. You know, if you can do it, great. But no one's been successful so far. And we think that based on the way the network is, you'll expend a lot of resources and you will get nowhere. So have fun or join us. Just embrace it. Everyone is welcome. And even if we didn't welcome you, you could join anyway. Jesse, this moves perfectly into, again, the big appeal for me for a while of of crypto, and we had a guest on the first season who took us through it, is that inclusivity. And now I'm doing two quotes because I like inclusivity so much. The first one from your chapter seven is, participation does not require permission. And the next one I liked was from chapter nine, this immensely impactful yet oft overlooked source of power affords authorities undue influence over economic activity, permitting central banks and governments to subjugate our livelihoods to their misguided mandates and failing to equitably promote prosperity. So I think I liked that one just on sort of the equity and money. And to the point of the theme of this podcast, it's not its not necessarily just about Bitcoin. It's about women and money and female yeah. identifying persons. It's about talking about previous exclusions to a number of groups. But that, that was always a big promoter to me is this pseudo anonymity that Bitcoin couldn't exclude someone even if they wanted to. You have, you have no idea who, yeah. you don't know what I look like what race I am, what country I'm from. Yeah, nationality, gender, nationality, none of that None of that matters. You know, yeah, it's all... Sexual orientation, gender, yep. all of it. I mean, I, I found that so interesting. And I knew that about the crypto space as well, that while I had the presumption that sort of blockchain and Bitcoin had a bit of a, a finance bro culture, I was informed 
that it's not. It's such a tech world. It's such an inclusive world. It's it's got it's got sort of everyone is what I understand. I make a very deliberate distinction between Bitcoin and the rest of crypto. Right. Again, the whole point of crypto is that you have this trust minimized Mm. foundation where Again, I don't need to know everyone in the network, but because I can verify on my own the state of the network, I feel confident that I can trust it. On that note, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Do you love our podcast art? I'm actually obsessed with it. It was created for us by a very talented local artist right here in Toronto named Claire Fang. And due to popular request, we're making it available to you. Check out our website, loveanddividends.com, to get your very own custom Love and Dividends swag. So even as the host of a financially focused podcast, I am constantly confusing these financial terms. What I did for myself was create a handy little cheat sheet to keep everything clear. And now I'm sharing it with you. I hope it will be a helpful tool as you tune in regularly to our show. I don't love the term cheat, but I love the idea of a cheat sheet. Sign up for our mailing list at loveanddividends.com to get a free copy of my beautiful Love and Dividends cheat sheet emailed right to you. So I wanted to get into, to your point of Bitcoin and hype and understanding it. So recently, Bitcoin was at, I believe, was at its like absolute highest value it's been to date, I think in January of this year then a bit of a drop. This is why I think a lot of us, frankly, myself until your book would have seen it as an investment. Um, Obviously, you make the argument that it just is what money should be. So what do you see as the future of Bitcoin? um, And what have your experiences been as an investor? I sold, I started selling fiat in 2017. Ah. Okay. I started selling my fiat. Divesting um, your fiat. I started divesting my fiat in early 2017. And, and for me, it was a little bit of lucky timing. When I started, I was buying Bitcoin. I was also buying Ethereum. I started to get into all these other tokens because I, I knew that Bitcoin had been around the longest. I understood a little bit of the prehistory, but Ether and the, and the rest of the crypto sphere was, was interesting and appealing. And we've all been told diversify your portfolio. I'm not yeah, of course. And I it's understandable it. that, you know, that that gets pitched. But at the end of the day, we're into this because we are distrustful of the fiat monetary system. And if you're going to trust something, Bitcoin has overcome every obstacle in its past for 12 years. It has defeated every enemy that has presented itself for 12 years. It was born right out of the financial crisis. There was zero precedent everything else is standing on the shoulders of Bitcoin. If Bitcoin were to fail, and I'm not saying it will, because I am very you know, biased in saying that I think it will not. But if Bitcoin fails, then the rest of it fails because they can't possibly survive without Bitcoin. So again, you can speculate, do your homework, be skeptical, truly evaluate, is this token meaningful or is there a team behind it with their handout hoping to, to enrich themselves from it? I, I moved everything I had into Bitcoin you know, from all these whatever coins that I'd sort of explored. And basically, I'd lost money on a lot of other coins and just realized that, okay, I need to consolidate everything into Bitcoin because this is the only thing that I can trust. And that if I'm putting my, you know, long-term hat on and thinking, where are we going in five years, 10 years? Like, what do I want to be holding? The only thing I want is Bitcoin. I want I want to make the point, though, because it's important that I consolidated what I had in, in 
these investments, we can call it that, um, into Bitcoin because it has the lowest risk of any of these assets. And in my opinion, it has by far the highest upside because its addressable market is literally money. Gold, 90% of gold's value is monetary premium, right? Today, so many people park money in real estate because they think real estate is a sound investment. Real estate is is a consumer good. You have to, you know, pay to upkeep it. You you don't save in real estate. You can't transact in real estate. So there yeah, that's are that's a big rich dad, poor dad. Uh, yeah, you know, your your house is actually your biggest liability, not your biggest asset. Yeah. So there's yeah. monetary premiums ascribed to all kinds of assets. At a certain point, if you're if you really start to get it, if it really starts to click, you start to measure your life not in dollars. Like I think. Well, it's worth this many Bitcoin this year, but if I can hold off another year or another two years, is it going to be, will I be able to buy that for less Bitcoin? Every time, you know, the answer is yes. Again, it's not in a straight line that Bitcoin will get there. But if you can put that long-term hat on and where are we going in five years, where are we going in 10 years, then everything trends down in Bitcoin terms. The prices of everything trend down. I don't know. I'm really inspired by this. Obviously, we're at such a peak of consumer culture, or I think we were. I'll be, I'll be curious how much this pandemic impacts that either way. But we were certainly at such a frenzy, so many trends like minimalism. As you're saying this, I'm realizing I think a lot of it comes from even in my own life. Okay, I know this will cost more next year. And I know my money's worth less next year. I don't quite know how much either way, but I know that. So I'd better get it now. Not that I think that way all the time, but that's the logic. And so what you're saying, and if we could actually all get our heads around that, could just have such an interesting impact on the way we consume. When you say, well, instead of if I hold off, it's going to go up in value and my money's less. And what you'll find as a result of that is it compels you to save more and spend less. You start thinking to yourself, well, if I, you know, I used to go out and buy $20 lunches, I can make a lunch for $6.00. That $14 difference now, that becomes excess capital for me. I can save it. And hopefully in the future, it'll, you know, increase in value along with the rest of my savings. And I, you know, I say hopefully, but because nothing is guaranteed, obviously, of Bitcoin. I just think the probability is extremely high. By consuming less and saving, we prepare ourselves to invest for things that matter. And we are taking care of our future selves. We are looking further and further into the future. Again, better quality products and services. If I have that lower time preference mind, lower time preference, meaning I think further into the future versus high time preference, which is I want to consume now, now, now. I have money, it's burning a hole in my pocket. I want to consume now. Yes. As more and more people do that, again, the social effects of us together having that mindset, we start to want to build structures and institutions that reflect that mindset. And so those will all change drastically. People criticize Bitcoin. Well, you can't buy Bitcoin with coffee. Well, in the future, you know, we might just be giving away coffee. Baristas will have be wealthy and have time on their hands and they will dedicate themselves to the art of creating coffee and give it away. And people will find value in it for different reasons because, or they'll be creating value in other arenas. It's like the world is going to go through a very drastic change. Bitcoin is leading that change. The pandemic has accelerated it to a certain degree. But getting there again is not going to be a, a straight line. If you're going to think of it as an investment for the future, you have to really, again, have the long-term view, but then also maybe have a game plan for yourself where if you have zero Bitcoin right now, first of all, owning zero Bitcoin is is the wrong number of Bitcoin to have. Yeah, because I own zero Bitcoin and I want to move it from zero Bitcoin to some Bitcoin. So I definitely have a question for sort of starting out investors. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will too. 
that is coming up. But before that, I want to read my last sure. quote of the segment for yeah. a question for you that we are asking all guests, which is, what does wealth mean to you? And I'm going to read your quote. You can have a different answer, but I really liked this one from chapter four. When money is agreeably exchanged, it leads to additional productive capacity and the creation of valuable goods or services, otherwise known as growth. Growth lets us enjoy a higher standard of living, which we would call prosperity, and to maximize the value of our possessions, which we could call wealth. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's more eloquent than anything I can say here. Um, But yeah, wealth, you know, it's about enjoying life. It's not about counting how many dollars are in the bank account, right? Because that's not what makes life fulfilling and enjoyable. It's about enjoying your time. Time is the most scarce asset of all. And so we want to make the best of it, right? We want to enjoy with friends and family. We want to go to places and have experiences. That's that's wealth. Bitcoin just enables that. It makes it easier for everyone to enjoy wealth. Beautiful. If we're, if we're talking about fiat money, because of this system we have, we know that gains compound over time, i.e. if you invest, whether it's real estate or the stock market, and I don't want to call Bitcoin an investment anymore, if you get it early, your gains are going to compounding interest, you know, was called one of the seven wonders of the world by Einstein. Yes. So a question we like to ask is the sort of, I wish I knew what I know now when I was younger. The compounding Wealth is a very important principle. And I first remember learning about that. My parents, when I was 18 years old, gave me the wealthy barber, right? David Chilton in the book talks about how, you know, if you squirrel away, you know, 10% of your paycheck every every month, every two weeks, whatever it is, that over time, A, the amount that you're saving adds up, but B, if it's earning interest, those interest gains compound on top of each other. And that's a very powerful effect. Now, Bitcoin does not have interest, as we said. Instead, it increases in purchasing power. It's a difference there. Right. Um, But the principle is the same. It teaches you that if you are making a concerted effort to put away X amount and you're doing it with the mindset of I am looking forward into the future. Am I making some sacrifice today? Yes, because I can't spend that 10% every time it comes in. You are putting yourself in a better position for the future. So, yeah, the lesson is you should have a plan, like make a plan for yourself. That's that's the lesson is really think oh, forward. I'll do it this afternoon. I don't want to make a plan. Big, the, the thing about Bitcoin is it makes a plan easy. If you're putting 10% of your money away in the fiat world, you're thinking, okay, well, I have to put it into this fund and I need to have exposure to equities and I need to have exposure to bonds. I need to have exposure to real estate and commodities and on and on and on and on. And on. Bitcoin makes it simple. It's put money away, save money. And the purchasing power of that money is programmed to increase over time because more and more trust is funneled into the network. The network is robust. People are attracted to it. It is absorbing and all the excess wealth that is being foregone by the central banks who don't want their currencies to have wealth, who don't want their economies to be efficient. Bitcoin is just absorbing all that value and just funneling it into its own little circular economy over and over again. Yeah, Jesse, how do I buy Bitcoin? There's levels and layers to everything in Bitcoin. It's it's literally every part of Bitcoin is a learning experience and every part of using Bitcoin is a learning experience. So there's no one-stop shop and there's no one lesson to convey. But, you know, in in Canada, ShakePay is an app that you can download on your on iPhone or Android. So ShakePay is a very simple, intuitive app. It's built by a gentleman in Montreal named Jean, Jean Amuri. 
I've spoken with John before. He's a wonderful man. What what his does, his app is super simple and it basically allows you to send and receive Bitcoin and to buy Bitcoin because you can send an e-transfer and, you know, then you like just- Like from any major Canadian any, bank? Any Canadian bank. Yeah, no, he's fully licensed in Canada. Like there's, it's in the app store. It's, it's 100% legitimate. You'll have it on the app. Now the app, so this is where the layers come in is not you having the private keys of your wallet. And the private keys are the thing that make the Bitcoin truly yours. This is an entry point, but you can send it from ShakePay to a wallet that you have control of. And an example of a wallet that you could download again on an on a iPhone or Android is a blue wallet, if you want to make note of that. That's just a very straightforward wallet that you open up the app, it'll walk you through. When you initiate a wallet, I, I mentioned the private key. A private key is a string of 12 or 24 words that you must keep in sequence in order. And that is the thing that allows you to spend your Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin don't exist on any USB device or anything like that. They're always on the network. The key allows you to move them around on the network. Blue Wallet lets you control the key. ShakePay is just a really easy, simple entryway. There's a YouTube channel called BTC Sessions. Uh, he's a Canadian in Alberta. I was interviewed on his show after I launched my book. His name is Ben. He's the host. And so he just has all kinds of tutorials that are very, very helpful for beginners. Fully different subject, but given the times we're in, uh, what have your silver linings been? The importance of human rights and freedom and why it matters and why it's so important, why that is the best mechanism for humanity to solve its problems. Top-down authoritarianism approach only creates obstacles to problems. They do not solve problems. They, they insert obstacles under a benevolent you know, banner. And it's something that maybe we got a little lazy in thinking about it and teaching it. You know, I'm hopeful that more people are starting to recognize that top-down, whether it's governments, whether they're posing as de democratic or whatnot, they are impediments. People solve problems, right? Mm. We individually need to take responsibility for our actions. If, if everyone just wants to be irresponsible and have someone bail them out, then, no, then we will never have success. We will never achieve anything. We need failure so that we can learn from it. That's how we grow. But when we bail out failure and then you know there is no success. There is, there is no accomplishment. Love it and agree. And now it's time for money wins. Money wins is a way you spent, saved, or invested your money that feels like a win. Jesse, do you have a money win for us? Investing in knowledge, right, and investing in yourself—that's the most important thing you can do. Learn to learn, right? Learn to teach yourself new things. Learn to evaluate things on your own. There is a correlation between understanding Bitcoin and wanting to own more of Bitcoin. <laughs> um, that's, but that's beautiful. I have definitely been in a few industries where there is a reverse correlation, which yeah. more people get under the hood and have a look at the gears and how it works. The more they're like, I want no part of this. A lot of our systems, I mean, in the way you write about it, I mean, government's sort of one of those. Yeah, no, it's not about, it's not about right, left. It's about the system itself. And it's like, yeah. why are we giving that much reverence to, to a title? It's, it's just, it's this sort of title that gives this reverence and 
the argument always becomes circular of like, of course you can trust me and I am benevolent. And you're like, I'm sure you're human. I, I don't yeah, see anything we, not human about we, you. We can, we can make all the rules we want, but like you can't outlaw stupidity. You can't outlaw <laughs> humans. Bias. Just bias. You can't outlaw people skirting, bending the rules, doing whatever, which comes back to why a programmatic, you know, cryptographically enforced base layer trust system can really have a major, major effect on things for the better. <laughs> I'll end it with that, for the better. For the better. Thank you so much for just writing such such a well-written book. I really do think for any listeners, I, I highly recommend, it's actually, uh, the graphics look so beautiful as you held it up. So I highly recommend it in that format, although I loved having it on my Kindle just so I could sort of highlight away. And I love that I can see, again, it's kind of that community. I can see what other people highlighted and were inspired by. So my win would be would be to buy the Kindle. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And we sign off with love and dividends. Thank you so much for listening to the Love and Dividends podcast. Please subscribe, share, and rate us with five shining stars on iTunes. It really helps us rise in visibility to reach more listeners like you. To find out more, check out our website, loveanddividends.com, our Instagram, at loveanddividends, or email me, leslie at loveanddividends.com. This episode was produced by Holly Dotson. Until next time, I'm Leslie Gray, signing off with Love and Dividends.